Good morning. How are you doing this morning? Wow. I guess I can give a welcome to those who are following us online. Great to have you with us as well from your cottage up north. Um, <clears throat> my name is Joe. I'm one of the pastors here. I work with the College and Young Professionals group called The Greenhouse. At, woo, and um, if you um, are in that demographic or you consider yourself to be a part of that demographic, we would love to have you consider jumping in with us this summer. We've got some really cool things going on. 7 o'clock this Thursday night in the, uh, in the quad. And um, we've got more than that, but that would just be kind of an introductory point. And uh, you can come meet me afterward or meet any of these other people over here. Uh, not everybody over here is a part of that group, but, but look for people that look your age. And then those are probably people in the group. So, um, hey, obviously, that I, I'm, I, I start off with some humor, but our hearts are heavy this week, right? We've got um, probably one of the greatest tragedies, at least, at least one of the greatest tragedies of my day um, that has happened in, in uh, Uvalde, Texas. And so I just wanted to take a moment and ask that you'd pray with me for that community, and we can just lift them up to God at this point, it seems often that he's the, he's the one that, that has the power to, to intervene and do something way beyond whatever we could ask or imagine. So let's do that. Father, we do come before you, and we pray um, as we, our hearts are heavy, God, we, we think and, and, and grieve and mourn um, along with this community who's lost many, many uh, children and um, siblings, um, friends, uh, peers, teachers. God, we, we oftentimes look at that, and we don't know what to make out of it. We just know that we live in a world that, that where evil exists. And God, we long for your kingdom to come. We pray that you would comfort these people, that you would do something that is beyond human imagination, a human, what, what humanity can do to help. God, for those who've lost children, I don't even know how to make sense out of that, God, but we pray that you would intervene in their lives and you would be very near to them. And, and for that whole community, God, that you would be near to them. And we lift them up in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we're going to be looking at a little bit of what it would mean to be an exile or a foreigner. And I want to ask you as you think about just this idea, what would it, what would it be like to be a wanderer in this world, a, an alien or a stranger in a foreign land? Millions, millions of people have been displaced over the last several months. It's estimated over 14 million people have had to flee for their lives as Russia has invaded the Ukraine. Looking, many of these people are looking for asylum. They're in, in search of a place to rebuild their lives, seeking safety and security. The result of this exile has meant that many, many, many families have been severed. Some may never see loved ones again in this life. The stories are, are gripping, they're visceral, they're, they're heartbreaking. Many of the accounts that we've been exposed to are women, right? Women fleeing with their children, leaving husbands behind to fight. Again, uncertain if they'll ever be reunited in the land of the living. And these stories are, are people who, who are, have been exiled from their homeland. They ran for their lives, and where they end up, they're strangers in a foreign land. I think about what it would be like to be a Ukrainian who ended up in the U.S., unfamiliar with language, culture. Everything would be foreign to you. Everything you've ever known, gone. You fit in because you're human, but other than that, you feel like an alien. Well, this doesn't just happen today. A similar thing happened when the apostle Peter wrote his first letter in the New Testament. He wrote to the people of the dispersion. 
The believers Peter's writing to have been displaced into five different regions of the Roman Empire. And what's probably most likely northern Turkey. They had been exiled, pushed out of their homeland. Some were Jewish Christians and some were Gentile Christians. But the reality is that all of them were facing trials and persecution and suffering for their faith in Jesus. And that's a really a huge theme as you walk through Peter's letter. It's this concept of being a sojourner, someone who is a stranger in an exile, an alien in the land where they live. You might consider them a resident alien. So, so as Peter's laying the groundwork for how Christians are to think about themselves as people who are both residents, you know, we live here, but we're all also aliens. We just don't fit in here. He first lays the foundation for how we're to think about ourselves based on our identity, our new identity as a Christ follower. And then how we're to live in light of that new identity. Now, this isn't unique to just Peter's writing. If, if you are familiar with the New Testament, if you've, if you've read the Bible, you see this as a consistent pattern. The goal of the Christian faith, again, isn't just to suck it up and obey. The goal is to be so deeply impacted by the gospel and who we are because of the gospel that obedience makes sense. Obedience becomes the desire of your heart. When you, like, like, like you, you've been so loved by God that your response is to love him in return. And the way you love him is that you, you obey him. It's not a bunch of do's and don'ts. It's way more, this is who I am. And because these things are true of the new me, like I'm not going to go back to living in bondage to sin or continue to live a worldly life. In other words, holiness flows from deep gospel understanding and grasping our new identity in Jesus. And the crazy thing about growing in your understanding of the gospel and your identity is that you get it and then you grow. And then you get it even more. And then you grow some more. And then you, you continue to get it. And you continue to deepen your understanding. And so this is what progress in the faith is all about. It's this constant deepening and embracing of what's true about you because of Jesus. And so really this message that I'm giving you today is, is broken into two parts. The first part is really like, this is like Peter's just going to hammer on this idea of our identity. He's going to give us seven statements about who we are because of the gospel and because of this new identity, because of what Jesus has done in us. And then the second part is, how are we to live because of that stuff, because of what's true of us? And so if you have a Bible or a web-enabled device, you can flip or tap your way to 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 9. If you don't, you can read along with me on the screens. This is what Peter writes. He says, but you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You are a people for his own possession. You that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous life. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak evil against you, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. 
And so again, Peter's going to start off. He's going to lay this foundation for us. We're going to look at seven identity thoughts or ideas. The first one is this. You're a chosen race. That the Greek word for that word chosen is eklektos. And it means chosen or elect. Selected. Favorite. Handpicked. Picked out. Now it's interesting. Um, who are God's chosen people? Now you're going to say you, we are. And that's true. We just said that, right? But God's chosen people are the, the Israelites, right? The Jews. But here Peter again says that you are. If you're in Christ, you're part of God's chosen people. What does that mean for Israel? I like how one scholar says it. This is what he says. He says, the description of the church in these verses parallels God's description of Israel in the Old Testament. In contrast to the disobedient and rebellious nation of Israel, God's people today, you and me, are his chosen and holy nation. This does not suggest that God is through with Israel, for I believe he will fulfill his promises and his covenants and establish the promised kingdom. But it does mean that the church today is to God and the world what Israel was meant to be. So being chosen doesn't have anything to do with earning or deserving something. It has everything to do with God choosing you based on his grace and his mercy. The imagery here takes me back to middle school PE. And for a lot of us, that just evokes a lot of PTSD. <laughs> and you, th you think about the times when teams were being picked, right? And, and what, what this is, is teams are being picked, but with a wild twist. Instead of God picking the most athletic or the most popular or the most attractive, what does the Bible say? God chose you. He chose the, the foolish to shame the wise. He chose the, the weak to shame the strong. And so his choosing of you means that you're blessed and you're special. But unlike PE, you weren't chosen because of your strengths. You were... You were chosen because, again, God is merciful and gracious and loving. That's the kind of stuff we need to just drink in. We need to saturate ourselves with. That's, that's, just, that's the stuff that, as we kind of go through our days, that's the stuff we need to, to let just, just, that we marinate in that all day long. And so where does that lead us? It leads us to humility and thankfulness. There's no room for being puffed up because you're God's chosen people. If anything, you're like, what did he see in me? And the truth is, he chose you again because he's amazing and gracious and he's kind, the New Testament says, to the ungrateful and the wicked. That's the first thing. Peter goes on, he says, you're a royal priesthood. Well, what does that mean? It means a couple, at least two things. It means that every believer has direct access to the presence of God. We don't come to God by any person on earth, we, but we come through one mediator, and that's Jesus Christ. And then second, it also means that instead of the priestly line only extending through the Levites, got to go back to the Old Testament, the 12 tribes of Israel, the Le Le Levitical tribe, was a tribe that the priest would, be, would come from. Today, it extends to all followers of Jesus. We're all priests serving Jesus today. In, in the church, and I believe this is not right thinking, we often elevate pastors above the rest of the church. But really, we're all serving the Lord together. We just have distinct roles and responsibilities. Pastors 
have the responsibility to serve the church and provide oversight, shepherding, leadership. And our job is to equip you guys to be the best gospel ministers possible. I really don't like it when churches refer to their clergies as ministers. Because again, we're all ministers of the gospel. Ministry falls on every one of our shoulders. And this is, this is huge. The priesthood of believers means that every one of us has a ministry to be engaged in. And so if you're not somehow serving inside or outside of the church, you're missing out on the opportunity to be a part of this holy priesthood, this royal priesthood. But there's something else implied in being a part of God's royal priesthood. You and I have the sobering call to live lives worthy of the calling that we've received. In other words, baked into this responsibility is the high call for us to be set apart for the purpose of serving Jesus. And so how we conduct our lives is huge to our effectiveness in ministry. Peter goes on, he says, you're a holy nation. What's a holy nation? A holy nation is a, a group of people set apart to belong exclusively to God. We're actually citizens of heaven, the Bible says. And our first allegiance is to our citizenship in God's kingdom. Now, obviously, this isn't geographical. Peter is talking again about people who've been ransomed by Jesus. God has called us out of the world, and he set us apart to be his special people. So this holy nation is really a group of people who've been set apart, set apart to proclaim the gospel to the world. We are to be what Israel was to be. We're to be a people who point the whole world to God and to their need for a Savior. Our, our goal is to mirror who God is to the world. A holy nation is a nation that's dedicated and devoted to Jesus. We're a holy nation, again, because Jesus called us out to be his people. Look what P P Peter just keeps going. He says, you're a people for his own possession. Now, if you were to turn to another place in the New Testament, we would read this. It's in Colossians, Paul writes this. He says, God rescued us from the dominion of darkness, and he brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so God is in the business of ripping people out of the kingdom of darkness, out of the control of the evil one, and bringing them into his kingdom. The truth is that everyone in this world exists in one kingdom or another. Either they belong to the evil one and are under his control and live in the kingdom of darkness, or they belong to Jesus and they are a part of the kingdom of light. And so I ask you this morning, what kingdom are you a part of? If you've not come to Jesus by faith, then you are still a part of the kingdom of darkness. I lived in the kingdom of darkness for a long time in my life. And I remember what it was like to be lost. And I remember what it was like for the first time to have the blinders taken off and to, to be able to see clearly. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. He did it all 
so that he could pay for your sin and my sin. And when Jesus paid for your sin, he made it so that you could be perfect and so that you could stand before a perfect God. I like the way Peter shares the gospel. He says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins. He says the righteous Jesus for the unrighteous, you and me, to bring us to God. That was his whole point. When he died, he died so he could bring you to him, bring you to the Father. It says he was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Okay, the fifth thing that we learn is that you are God's people. Again, Peter just keeps hammering on these things. I just want to stop and just for a moment and again ask you, is this the stuff that you think about in your life? Do you, do you wake up in the morning and think, I am a part of God's people? Are these the things that are, are the things that you kind of ruminate on throughout the day? Because these truths are the truths that will transform your life. We say this over and over again as a church, what you believe affects what you do, or what you believe affects what you will do next. And so the reality is we need to be thinking about these things. This isn't something you're like, I got it, check the box and move on. This is what the Christian faith is about. It's about understanding who you are and then living out of that understanding. Peter gives us two more identity thoughts. He says this, once you were, had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And in Jesus, you only get mercy. Isn't that great? Romans 8.1 says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You only get mercy. Now, for those of you who have been around church for a long time, you might get the difference between grace and mercy. But I just thought it would be good to talk about it just a little bit, maybe for those maybe who are newer to the faith. I want to delineate, give you a, an idea of what the difference between grace and mercy is. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Grace is getting God's favor. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. You deserve punishment, and I deserve, we deserve hell. And so mercy is not getting what you deserve. I like the way that um, GotQuestions.org defines this. They do a great job. They said this, mercy is forgiving the sinner and withholding the punishment that is justly deserved. Grace is heaping undeserved blessing upon the sinner. In salvation, God doesn't show one without the other. In Christ, the believer experiences both mercy and grace. And the last point that Peter makes as it relates to our identity is this one, that we are aliens and strangers, sojourners and exiles. Have you ever thought about that as being part of who you are? You are an alien and a stranger. To me, I think this is the one that's a zinger. Not that the other six aren't important. But to me, I think that many of the problems in the church relate to our struggle with being way too friendly with the world. We struggle with this world being our home. We want to fit in. We want this world to be our sanctuary. We long for comfort and peace and security. We want to be seen as successful and attractive and like we've got it all together in the world's eyes. Ever since we got booted out of the garden, we've longed for a place that we could call home. And yet the reality is we are aliens and strangers. We are exiles and sojourners. I, I like the way Carrie Underwood says it. She says, 
this is our temporary home. I'm not going to sing it. You, you thought I was. She said, this is our temporary home. It's not where we belong. Windows in rooms that we're passing through. This is just a stop on the way to where we're going. I'm not afraid because I know this is our temporary home. And so we should be able to relate to the Ukrainian refugee and how they might feel, at least in one sense, because we don't fit in. We might recognize language and culture, but this world is so uncomfortable to someone who's been redeemed by Jesus. And if it isn't uncomfortable, something's wrong. I like how Wearsby puts it. He says, we're resident aliens who have our citizenship in another country, heaven. Like the patriarchs of old, we are temporarily in this life traveling toward the heavenly city. Apostle Paul um, wholeheartedly agree. He said this in another place in the New Testament. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So those are the seven kind of identity thoughts that Peter gives us. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna pivot now. You ready to do that with me? We're gonna, we're gonna kind of shift now and we're gonna go from that way of thinking of, about who we are and we're gonna springboard off of that into what are we to do now? Like, what's, what's, what are the commands that flow out of that, that who we are? Peter's going to give us three. And again, these flow right out of the gospel and our identity as children of God. The first one we have to backtrack just a little bit for, but it's this, that we're to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so we're to proclaim the gospel. We're to uh, talk about how, God, how good God has been to us. We're to talk about the excellencies of, of who God is to the world around us. The Greek word for proclaim is this word, ex and hello. And it means to proclaim or report or to make known. So because of who we are, we have the responsibility to point people to God. Both with our lives and with our words. Now, whenever you start to talk about proclaiming the gospel, a lot of people will be like, well, there's this old guy named St. Francis of Assisi, and he said that we should preach the gospel and, if necessary, use words. Anybody ever heard that before? Well, I, I, I've, I've always thought that was kind of weird. And so I just did a little bit of research this week, and I read a, a really good article that was written for the, for the Gospel Coalition, and this is what they said. They said St. Francis never said that. He never said in any of his writing or in all the biographies that were written about him, there's nothing about that anywhere. So somebody just made that up. And in fact, St. Francis was so passionate about proclaiming the gospel that in one account, he traveled to five different villages in one day to proclaim the gospel. This guy was passionate about preaching the message of the gospel. God's people are to proclaim the virtues of who Jesus is to a world that's in darkness. And just to put a nail in this Francis of Assisi coffin, listen to what Dwayne Lifton, this is a former president of Wheaton College, this is what he says. He says, it's simply impossible to preach the gospel without words. The gospel is inherently verbal, and preaching the gospel is inherently verbal behavior. I like the way that the, the, the Bible talks about that in, in Romans 10. Paul says this, how then can they call on the one they've not believed in? And how can they believe in the one they've not, whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? 
And so as God's people rescued by Jesus, who have been shown incredible mercy, we are to show forth, to tell out, to advertise the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And one of the ways that I think we can do this most simply is just by sharing our story. Every one of us has a story. The st our story is like, how did God rescue us? And so our story starts over here with, what was our life like before coming to Christ? What was it like before we understood who Jesus is and, and what the gospel is all about? And then the, the next part of the story would be, how did we understand the gospel? Like, well, what did we, what, what were the, the circumstances surrounding even us understanding that having the, the blinders taken off of so that we could really grasp the truth of the gospel. And then over here is what is our life like now? Like how has God changed us based on our understanding of what the gospel is all about? And so that's just really simple. That's one of the ways that we can proclaim the gospel to our friends. That's the first command that Peter gives us, to proclaim the excellencies of who God is to the world. The second command is this, that we're to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against our souls. Again, remember, you're an exile and a sojourner. This world isn't your home. And because that's true of your life, you and I are to live in the world, but not to be of the world. Another place in the New Testament, we're told that being a friend of the world is actually being an enemy of God. And what I think all of this means is that we can enjoy the world as a gift from God. But we don't look to the world to fulfill something in us that it was never meant to fulfill. We don't seek to find our identity in the world. There's something distinct and different about us in how we live and operate in the world. And so as I've been thinking about this, this, this the past couple of weeks, about this concept, to me the distinction seems to be in the phrase, passions of the flesh. In other words, my issues aren't really with you. My issues are with me. It's my sin nature. In, in Jesus, my sin nature has been cut off, but it hasn't been completely removed. It's kind of like that like snakeskin that's been partially shed, but we still drag it with us through life. And so because of Jesus making us alive and the indwelling Holy Spirit in us, we have the ability to, to walk in, according to the Spirit, or we have the ability to walk according to the flesh. And so there's this battle that goes on inside of us. It's like a civil war going on inside of our minds. And it's a war that we can deal with daily. I'd even argue that sometimes it's a moment-by-moment -moment battle. There's things we do that stir up the flesh, and there's things that we do that we need to do that to, to starve the flesh. But one of the things that you can know about your flesh is it's never going to get better. If anything, as I've grown in my faith, I, I just recognize more clearly just how wicked my flesh is. I'm more convinced than ever that I need a Savior. And so if you want to know what the flesh is all about, the New Testament defines it like this. It says, the, the, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, Impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. 
Paul was like, I'm going to give you all this stuff, and then I'm going to say, and a whole bunch of other things probably too. So this just gives an idea of what the flesh is. And the challenge is that so much of our world wants to stir up your flesh. I mean, think about it. What sells? Does holiness sell? Sex sells. That's right. Sensuality sells. Impurity sells. Our flesh gets twisted by alcohol. And we struggle with envy and jealousy and anger and all these other emotions that are in this list. It's really unchecked emotion that hasn't come under the control of the Holy Spirit. And it's the kind of thing that one moment you can be in step with the Holy Spirit and the next you can be out of step with the Holy Spirit. That's the struggle. That's the war that Peter's talking about here. It's, the, it's moment by moment. That's why Peter says to abstain from the passions of the flesh because you can't just dip your toes in the waters of the flesh. It's too strong. You just get pulled right in. And so we're to abstain, we're to check out, we're to walk away, we're to run away, we're to flee. See, a lot of times we struggle with saying no to our flesh because we want to be like the world. We think we're missing out on something, that somehow God is withholding something good from us. But what does the flesh do? The flesh only leads to bondage, death, and destruction. I mean, we're in a culture that's more gripped by the flesh than ever before in my lifetime. And where has it landed us? We lack joy. We're, we're heartless. We're ungrateful. We're enslaved. And we're purposeless. And that's why Peter says your only option in this battle against the flesh is to abstain. It's to surrender to the Holy Spirit and learn to walk by the Holy Spirit in your life. I think of that illustration in my mind of in the Lord of the Rings of basically Frodo carrying the ring. The ring is too strong. It's too powerful. His only hope, I'm going to embellish this a little bit, is to depend on Jesus and walk in the power of the Spirit. And I think the key to all of this is what we've talked about. It's to be so enamored by the gospel, so caught up in the goodness of God, that we love God because he first loved us. We see all these identity truths and they motivate us toward holy living, being set apart for Jesus, devoted to him. And then we'll want what God wants for us. I mean, Kyle and I were talking about this, this two-part series as we were kind of getting ready to do this. And we both were talking about this passage in the Old Testament, this Psalm 37, 4, where the writer of the Psalm says, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. I love that because really the idea is as you delight yourself in, in the Lord, he is preparing you so that you're aligned with him. So it's real easy for him just to just give you the desires of your heart because they're exactly what he wants for you to have. Okay, our, the last admonition, the last command that we're going to look at here is this. It's to live honorably among the Gentiles. So when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So we're to live honorable lives. 
in this world. Again, Peter says that there's this outward movement in us. You know, like, I love that. So much of the New Testament says that we don't just do this in, in the corner, that we live our lives out loud for the sake of the world. I think it's interesting that Peter says to the believers in the first century that even as they live honorably, that the Gentiles are going to speak against them as evildoers. So we shouldn't be surprised when the same thing happens to us. And more and more in our culture, we are being spoken against as evildoers. In our culture today, if you don't fully buy in and promote the agendas of our times, you are seen as evil. But what does Peter tell us? He says, you just keep living for Jesus. You just keep honoring him. Live honorable lives. You keep doing good to those around you. And the end result will be that they will glorify God on the day of visitation, where either Jesus returns or we die and we stand before him. And so as a way of kind of tying this all together and rolling this out, I want to give you some application. And we're really close to being done, but, but I, I don't want to give the, the impression that we're going to like end really quickly here. I've got some important application. And what I want to share with you is a, a, a thought that a pastor friend of mine has shared with me years ago, and it's just stuck in my craw. I can't get it out of my mind. And he says this about us. He says that we tend to blend where we should stand out. And we stand out where we should blend. I'm going to say that again. We, we tend to blend where we should stand out as Christians, and we stand out where we should blend. And I, I saw another quote. I had to share this by a guy named Russell Moore. And he says the same thing. He says, We seem to want to embrace the world in all the ways we shouldn't, while avoiding engaging the world in all the ways we should. And so there's three areas in my mind over the last couple of decades that I've been thinking about where I think we need to stand out, where I think we blend too much. And these are the three. The first one is how we handle ourselves sexually. The second one is how we love our husband or our wife. And the third one is how we raise our kids. And these could be three standalone messages. I'm just going to touch on them. I, I'm not going to, I don't have time to, to give, you know, um, what I want to give to each of these. But I just, I just thought it was important to kind of give you uh, some more clear application. So the first one is our sexuality. We often look way too much like the world in how we think about sex. I know lots of Christians who, whose lives don't look any different than their unbelieving friends. Cohabitation, premarital sex, porn addiction. This is an area where we need to stand out. God has called us to, to live honorably. And to live honorably in these areas means that we need to abstain from sinful passions which wage war against our souls. How about our marriages? Generically speaking, marriage is something that is looked down upon in our culture. It kind of has been for a long time, but even more so now. Nobody wants to get married. People just live together. It's not something that's esteemed. Husbands and wives don't speak honorably about their spouses. And as far as sexual intimacy, there's way more sex that's happening before marriage that's happening than that's happening in marriage. 
And as far as lifelong marriages, there are a lot of broken marriages inside the church and outside the church. And so, men, we need to stand out in how we love our wives. The Bible says you're to love your wife as Christ loves you. You're to lay your life down for your wife. And women, you are, the Bible says you're to respect your husband. And so that seems like it should be doable, right? But it's so challenging. But that's how we're going to stand out in our marriages. If we love our wives and we respect our husbands. As far as sex, healthy sexual relationship, we ought to be experiencing regular sexual intimacy in our marriages. And our, our goal should be lifelong, committed, covenant relationships. And I know all of this is so complex. I, I just probably stuck my finger right in a really sensitive spot. I, I didn't mean to be insensitive at all. That's not my goal. But hear me, if you don't have the kind of marriage that you want to pass down to your children, get help. We all could use help in our marriages. Even if your marriage is good, why not make it great? I to have a really good marriage, I could make it even better. Get help. Get with Gary Post. Pursue another pastor in this church. Meet with your small group leader. Connect with a Stevens minister. Pursue professional counseling. Some stuff might be out of your control. I'm not asking you to look at the stuff that's out of your control. I'm asking you to think about what's your responsibility. Pursue growth and healing so you can live honorably within your marriage. And raising kids. How do we raise kids who love Jesus? Where do you even start with that? I, I think it starts with you as a parent thinking about how, how, just how, what God's doing in your life and passing that on to your children. Help your kids to understand the gospel in a deep way. When you fail, ask for forgiveness. It's one of the best ways to live out the gospel. Help build your kids up so they know who they are in Jesus. Their, the whole, their whole day is being either communicated stuff that's not true about them or being torn down. So when you're with them, you build them up and you help them understand who they are in Christ. Be the parent. Like, say no to your kids when you need to say no. Put healthy boundaries in place for their development. Be okay with them telling you that they hate you. That's actually a sign that you're doing a good job. Isn't that kind of wild? Don't give your kid a cell phone just because everyone else around them has a cell phone. My kids petitioned me for years and we told them no. And if you give them a cell phone, know that if they have a cell phone, they have access to anything on the internet. And if you give them access to social media, know that there's stuff on social media that will destroy their minds. Okay. I'm done. I'm going to give you my last quote from, from Warren Wiersbe. He says this, Strangers stand out. They don't fit in with the local culture. Their speech, dress, and behavior are different. So it should be with Christians in this life. Too many want to blend in. They want their children to fit in, to be included and accepted by their peers. Yet this should not be a priority. Rather, we need to be comfortable being different, being strangers. 
We need to instill in our children that's okay to not fit in instead of constantly looking for ways for them to be like others around them. And so, again, all this stuff flows out of the gospel. I'm not giving you a, a set of rules. I'm, I'm trying to stir up how do we connect godliness with who we are in Jesus. We're trying to connect Christian living by applying the gospel to our lives. It's the only way long-term spiritual progress happens. It starts with renewing your mind to the truth of who God says you are. And as that foundation deepens, the goal is to see more and more progress take place in our obedience to Jesus. And so that's why Peter lays it out for us. He says, you're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. We are, you're God's people. You've received mercy. You're aliens and strangers. And the net result of living out that identity is proclaiming how amazing God is to the world. It's abstaining from the passions of the flesh, which seek to destroy your life. And living honorably among your friends and your neighbors with the ultimate goal that we would glorify God when he returns in the person of Jesus. Let's pray. God, we're just in awe of you. We just think about proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Your light is marvelous, and you are the most excellent, praiseworthy person that we could ever think about. And we just thank you for giving us the chance to know you, that we have all these things that are true about us because of Jesus and because of the gospel work he's done in us. And so God, we ask that you would help us to continue to deepen those truths in our lives, that we would embrace them, that we would meditate on them, that we would, you would just change us because of these realities of, of, about, of who, who we are and what's true of us. And then as a result of that, you would help us to obey that you would help us to abstain, that you'd help us to proclaim, that you'd help us to live honorably. We just, just thank you that we have been given a different life. And I believe that much is going to be required from us because of that, God. And so help us to be faithful with what you've given us in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks for joining us this weekend. Hope you have a great rest of the next couple days while we've got some beautiful weather. Thanks for being here.